Hello and welcome to Endpoint Management Today. I am James Stewart, Big Fix Docker expert. And I'm Rhonda Student Kaiser, Big Fix Director of Customer Experience. Today we want to introduce you to one of the key brains living behind the curtain here at Big Fix, Dexter Liu. Dex is the lead developer for our Big Fix web user interface, more colloquially known as WebUI. And uh, he's also the lead for the new technology we just announced, Big Fix Mobile and our Big Fix Modern Client Management changes including the support of disk encryption and key escrow. Excited to have Dex here. Thanks for joining us today, Dex. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to be here on the Big Fix podcast, <laughs> going out to millions of people. <laughs> yeah, all 78 of us. No, I'm Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, Dex. Um, tell us a little bit about your how you got involved in tech in general and your life before joining Big Fix? Uh, tech in general. So generally speaking, uh, I've always been fiddling around with computers and stuff. I remember my first desktop back in the day was like, I think Windows, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact version. It was after 95, 98 around then, something like that. <laughs> yeah, Windows 98 would probably be it. Yeah. I remember playing some really weird like games, um, doing some basic programming, and I've always been sort of tinkering around on the side then. And you're saying you did some basic programming? Yeah, I mean, who didn't? Basic, basic, like the language basic. Yes, the like the go-to line 10 statement stuff, right? Exactly, okay. I printed like ASCII pyramids, <laughs> and I was uh, quite fascinated by that stuff back in the day. And you did this all on your own, or was there some sort of like something that prompted you to try that? I think I did it on my own. I mean, maybe I looked at books in library back in the day when those were a thing. <laughs> uh, when people like looked up resources and how to guides in real life as opposed to asking Google for help. I think back in the day, it was like Ask Jeeves was like a thing, right? <laughs> yes. Pre Google. Pre Google. Um, I think that's how I got started. And then, you know, high school happened and college happened. Was it was there anything in high school that any courses in high school at all that covered tech or programming or anything? I mean, yeah, so there was like AP computer science and that was what language was that? Was that C? So when I was in school we did Quick Basic and C plus plus. That's what we did in high school. I'm trying to remember. It was something like that. But I did AP Computer Science back in the day, um, which was basically just hanging out in the computer lab, <laughs> looking at this <laughs> Princeton textbook and fiddling around on Oregon Trail 2 um, and playing Quake 3 a lot in the computer lab. <laughs> nice. So nice. that's how I developed my programming skills. And yeah, that was kind of the background. My my school did not have like an AP computer science class. That's really interesting. But we had yeah a, pro a programming class, and then separate from that, we had like a build computers and learn how computers work class. But nothing nothing AP computer science. That's really fascinating. Yeah, it was. I I think it was quite fortunate that we had that, and I had a little bit of exposure there beyond just computer games. Like I. You know, I was still not good at computer science. <laughs> like, right. I was not great at it. Like, um, 
turns out uh, if the course curriculum is just playing first-person shooters, you don't actually develop good <laughs> computer science skills. Right. Not a lot of Boolean logic and no. uh, algorithms. No, <laughs> not, not in my experience. I mean, unless you start programming that stuff, but that's not, that's not what the course curriculum was. It was just <laughs> shooting people. <laughs> this, was, this was early days, so, you know, things were less formal, I guess. It was super not formal. It was just sort of, I, I think it was the math teacher that they yeah. asked to teach computer science. Yeah, that's kind of how it was for my school as well. Exactly. And these people may not have a computer science background, but they're yep. quote unquote technical. So they asked, but and you know, these schools are like, we need to get these kids ready for the future and stuff. So yep. that's what our program was with the goal to try to get kids to do uh, the AP course, which I did pass, I believe. <laughs> but, you know, those court, it, the funny thing about AP is like those course credits don't translate into much once you actually um, do a real college course. But that was like sort of the beginning, beginning of like the formal training back in the day, like maybe 20 years ago, <laughs> 15 years ago, some really long time ago. That you don't want to think about how long ago that was. <laughs> I mean, it's not that I don't want to think about it. It's just that I don't remember. Like, I, yeah, I, yeah, I'm exactly. sure math don't can think figure about it. that out. Mm. But I'm not good with dates and time. From Yeah, it was a long, long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was good times. I, I enjoyed hanging out and not really <laughs> doing computer science back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And so th then in college, did you do computer science there? I did, but I didn't do it well, uh, following the trend that I did in high school where I didn't really do too much computer science. So like I, my major was electrical engineering and computer science and material science. So when I picked that double major, my intention, like I had just played Metal Gear Solid 2, like I was really into nanomachines, I was going to uh, combine computer science with like really interesting com like materials and build tiny computers and new materials and stuff like that. That was my intention. I had no idea how to do that. And that's why you didn't go pure computer science. That's why you did a mixture. Yeah. So I wanted to do some sort of mixture. Turns out I hated both electrical engineering and material science. <laughs> electrical engineering was like, here's a circuit diagram you know, make it like a little bit faster right? or like tweak this circuit design to be better. And I didn't care. My philosophy has always been as long as it works, I'm very happy. <laughs> so this is why you're not on the performance team? Yes. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> we can get into that a little bit later. Uh, but You do work with the performance team. so I do. I do work with the performance team. And optimization. So I'm just joking with you. But yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Optimization, like, so you need all sorts of people on a team. Exactly. You need the people that do the optimization and the people that do things super, super correctly all the time. And then you also need people to push uh, the team a little bit more uh, and break things faster. <laughs> uh, you can't exactly. have all of them, uh, one, one class or another. Uh, but I, I feel like I represent the... Uh, the fail fast people. <laughs> That's sort of my style consistently. 
And I feel like that's part of why college is like, here, take this thing and make it more optimal because it's something that they have a before and after and they can test on that and, and measure your success where that's not a very like exciting or creative or pursuit. Yeah. I mean, it's valuable too. Like they're trying, exactly. I don't fault them for trying to teach us this stuff. It's just, I was never very interested in that particular academic pursuit. I'm sure a lot of people are really happy to make algorithms and circuit boards 5% faster. <laughs> like I'm sure that really is, is up their alley, uh, but it's not for me. So I, I never like was super interested in that stuff. So what I ended up doing instead of focusing on my studies was I joined this student-run, essentially, ISP at the university. So I went to Berkeley, like a lot of the Big Fix alums, or Big Fix employees did. And this place called ResComp existed in Berkeley. And they acted as this ISP for, essentially, uh, students that were on campus. They acted as frontline technical support, they troubleshot students that couldn't get connected to the Wi-Fi because we shut their internet off because they went over their bandwidth limits or they had like copyright uh, sort of because they were downloading movies off of Kazaa or whatever. <laughs> right. Or or DC plus plus. Yeah. So like copyright strikes. Yeah. So we we served the copyright stuff. We monitored their network traffic. We made sure their endpoints were protected and had antivirus and stuff. So, like, that's that's the organization that I joined. So I started really getting into that instead, and I always found that stuff more exciting, like solving real-life problems, interacting with real-life people that were trying to get their internet up so that they can finish their paper at the last minute for school or something like that. That. I right. found that infinitely more exciting and relevant compared to uh, circuit boards or <laughs> melting points of materials. Mm -hmm. Or algorithms. Or algorithms, which super valuable as well. Um, but I've always been not <laughs> to, your not to look passion. down on those people. Just not, just not for me, you know? <laughs> exactly. So that's really interesting that you had like some real practical IT experience that was really exciting for you. I honestly didn't know that because you've been at Big Fix for so long. That's just what I've known you as, is, you know, yeah, Big Fix developer. It's true. Like, uh, I was very, very lucky to have that experience and transitioned directly from having that experience into landing a position at Big Fix. <laughs> we, were, we were dealing with a lot of endpoint stuff. And, you know, as I worked more at the student organization and got a little bit higher in terms of seniority, I did more and more stuff, including leading this essentially patch uh, proof of concept at ResComp. Because they had, like, you, you think about the problem they were dealing with. It's very similar to what I imagine IT administrators in real life have to deal with all of these untrusted endpoints connecting to an, a central network, viruses running rampant, that sort of thing. So they needed some sort of patch management solution beyond nothing. <laughs> so we, we actually uh, did a pilot and I sort of evaluated a whole bunch of patch 
things at the time, including like Landesk. <laughs> Big Fix was one of them, actually. There were a couple other ones. I think Avanti, maybe, or some other patch management solutions. You know, I evaluated all of them, and Big Fix was the only one that worked. <laughs> like, you actually applied patches, and it says that the patches actually got deployed on the console, and you saw on the Windows endpoint itself that it recognizes that it has these patches. So it was like, even back then, a very, very easy thing to recommend to our IT organization that Fix actually worked. And I was able to make this recommendation as just like a student with basically no outside experience. <laughs> right. Just from trying them all. And yeah, just from like basically all. trying things, right? And validation and everything. Yeah. You know, like there were a couple more steps that led to UC Berkeley finally adopting Big Fix back in the day. <clears throat> but I think that was like among the first steps. And that's that's sort of how I got involved in the Big Fix world overall, just through this sort of first conversation. So that Big Fix patch that you deployed, that was for internal use or was it for the student machines as well? It was initially, so in addition to maintaining the student's sort of environment, like I think they did transition to having like Big Fix installed on students' machines maybe. Um, but like I think our initial bit was we also maintained a series of labs, uh, student labs where people can like go in, use computers, uh, print stuff. Like there were like four or five locations on campus that people could do this, like 20 or 30 machines. So the first bit was to test those machines, also to test the internal servers and infrastructure supporting the RESCOMP program. Um, that's that's initially what the big fix pilot was about. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. What's interesting though is uh, I actually worked for UC Berkeley, yeah, as like a big fix expert, and using that big fix environment uh, that had basically matured and expanded since then. Uh, so that's really just fascinating that you were there early on, and I was there much later. Yeah, it's super cool. There are no there are no coincidences in Big Fix. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's it's kind of I mean, so you you came from Berkeley, so you know, like the the IT organization's a little bit splintered, so I'm not sure exactly that that led to Big Fix overall being adopted widely everywhere. I don't think it hurt, uh but Yeah, exactly. But it's just that you were at UC Berkeley much earlier than I was and doing this yeah. big fix patch POC. And I w came to Berkeley much later in the big fix deployment. And like they may, they're probably not the same deployment. They're yeah. not necessarily even the same departments, but it's all kind of related. Like I'm sure what you did was much earlier than what I was involved in. I'm sure it was not the same deployment. Yeah, yeah. Like I had master operator privileges. Like I was yeah, yeah. I was looking at the big fix patch dashboard, seeing like four hundred open issues like on that old dashboard and mitigating all of them simultaneously without giving notice to anybody at <laughs> all. <laughs> like I was just rebooting machines. <laughs> I love it. And it was very exciting. Yeah. Definitely not the way things worked when I was there. 
<laughs> no, um, much more I think enterprise. In the real world, yeah, they give notice and they have patch maintenance windows and stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They have like <laughs> expected time frames and stuff. Yeah, not best practice. <laughs> Every Thursday, day after Patch Tuesday, you're gonna get like a a ping from Big Fix that patches are installing and you're gonna need to reboot or something, and you have X amount of time to do so. Not just. Dexter pushing reboot on everyone's computers. <laughs> but but Dex was doing I mean, what he always I, does, yeah. which is failing fast, right? Uh, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> or succeeding quickly. I did have a, a stern talking to afterwards. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, people were happy that we got results so fast. Like, the patch dashboard had, like, zero open issues after, like, a week. But... That was a fun thing where, like, the lead systems administrator took me aside and said, like, don't do this again. <laughs> You're succeeding too fast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's funny that that's, it. like, a, a concern. You're yeah. succeeding too quickly. Too disruptive. So how did you go from running Big Fix, at least in part, to working for Big Fix? So that was... That was, again, a direct transition, uh, thanks to Big Fix. <laughs> very, very fortunate. Um, so I, I graduated 2009, and around that time, like in the springtime, there was a career fair. I happened to be walking around, and there was like a Big Fix uh, tent or Big Fix booth there and I was like really excited because I was like, wow, I actually worked with this product before. I wonder I should just talk to them and say and mention that, right? So some big fix folks were there, big fix developers like um Ben Coos and Chris Lower and stuff like that. So I just started talking to them. I showed them my resume and they were really excited to see any candidate with any big fix experience whatsoever. Because <laughs> that's not a thing. Usually students don't apply to these sort of small startup comp like companies having that small startup company on their resume right um so i just happened yeah especially that yeah really early on in big fixes existence yeah so i just happened to have that and they brought me in for an interview right away they asked you know standard interview questions but they also sprinkled in like can you do this with relevance? What is the meaning of it in this root? Like, I remember they printed out all of the relevance, uh, custom relevance guide, like, like that big, like 7280 doc, remember from like, Hamel yes. or whatever, that's like mm -hmm. hundreds of pages of PDF. And they're like, here's the reference doc, you know, like, we're not monsters, we'll let you read the doc. <laughs> and then here's uh, ask, and then they gave me this long relevance statement and said, what does it in this particular clause refer to? And here's the guy. Good luck. And how'd you do? I, I failed that part of the interview. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> um, so, like, I was, you know, not really doing custom content at that point. Um, I knew about it, but I hadn't dived quite super deeply back then. Um, but they were still, like, very excited to see somebody with that sort of experience. Uh, and so they, they hired me to be a new developer back in 2009 and I've basically been doing big fix sets like so 11 12 years at this point something like that a really really long time I'm not sure who they expected to pass that interview question <laughs> I don't yeah so I don't think anybody would have passed I think uh 
they were just throwing something weird at me because I had this particular yeah. experience. I think if I was doing badly on the rest of the interview, they would have been like, okay, maybe we need to ask like another normal technical question. But because I think I was doing okay, they're like, instead of doing a normal algorithms question, why don't we just do something crazy? And so that's what they did. Yeah. <laughs> well, sometimes even if you get it wrong, how you approach it and how you try to explain it and, and showing that you do understand even if you get it wrong partially that 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 is still valuable in an interview yes i i think so maybe i failed the right way i (laughs) i just remember getting that big giant stack of papers trying desperately to look at the right i couldn't control f through that real life paper stack you know like i had to like flip pages and stuff so i was just trying to figure out relevance on the fly there but I guess they really liked the way I was flipping the papers there or something. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. how, however I, I got it, they were excited to have me on and uh, the rest is sort of history. Yeah, I was once on a hiring committee and hiring for, you know, senior level big fix people that have like custom relevance experience. And one of the questions was like, what is this relevance statement do? Yeah. And it was like meant to be very straightforward. And like, even if you didn't understand relevance, you should be able to like infer some things about it just based on like path names and stuff like that. And yeah, no one really had answers. And I was very saddened by that. <laughs> <laughs> I was yeah. like, even asking, like, what do you think this might do? And what might it do it on? Just like, if you can't even yeah. answer. Just give me some vagaries of what you think is going on here. And nope, I didn't get any good answers. And I was very sad. I had too high expectations, I think. That's my entire experience with Big Fix is uh, <laughs> not not really not knowing exactly how to program it, but kind of like inferring from what I can read <laughs> and going from yeah. that. Yeah, you can get pretty far, but you do have to have some skill even to do that. I think we sometimes under err undervalue our own skills when we can like read between the lines on something new that's true it's like we're still bringing a lot of skill to that ability to do so yeah inference is really important um you know from well at least from from a big fix perspective i mean you know james i say this all the time that um big fix to me is like archaeology you you kind of you get one level and then you see the next level down and you infer what that that means for the next level and and so you kind of learn by digging your way down in layers at least that's that that was my experience and i i think i'm getting to the point now though where i'm farther away so i don't know as much as i used to know <laughs> yeah that makes sense so dexter what did you do early at big fix after you got hired so i did patch management early that was like the first thing they threw me at i was very surprised at the time and when you say patch management, you mean creating the fix lights? Yeah, Windows patch, meaning patch Tuesday rolls around. I, I'm in charge of getting the office to do all the content generation and the fix testing and answering, being the subject matter expert for all of this Windows patching stuff for like all of our operating systems, you know, adjusting what the content generation did, like all sorts of crazy stuff to make sure that by the time our fixlets are published and people are trying to run our fixlets in the real world, it worked for basically 
all their circumstances, regardless of whether they've had previous content applied, regardless of other stuff they've installed already. It's like just basically doing this giant test matrix of content generation and testing. So that's what I was doing literally like three months after I joined. <laughs> it was crazy. It was insane. That's a very intense thing to be working on right away. Yeah. How many people were working with you on that? It was the whole office. So like it was crazy. What happened was we would do normal application development three out of four weeks of like a normal month. And then and then it's all hands on deck on patch. Yeah, then it's literally all hands on deck and making sure people like helped us push out patch as fast as possible because customers were depending on it. And if we messed up at any point, we would hear about it immediately. So it was really fun um, to, you know, have that sort of experience and getting people to work on the same thing as you. We were all in like the same foxhole together, like getting these patches out, staying way past normal office hours. There were a couple times where people were in the office at like 12, 1, 2. And at that point, people weren't really super effective. <laughs> uh, yeah. We just sort of did patch Wednesday uh, instead of patch Tuesday. That happened a couple of times. But it was a really fun experience uh, just working through like this sort of crazy crunch deadline like once a month. And that is so unusual to have an entire office working on the same problem for like Yeah, two it was days. like everybody knew about this problem in the office <laughs> and like anything you did to sort of make it better like they recognized immediately right like i i don't have to do so like over time our content generation got better right got easier to, and people were dragged in less and less and we got better at it as a company but those initial couple of times that we did it it was everybody was doing it uh and that had been the way we were doing it for for years <laughs> yeah like literally like uh before i came to that point that's what people were doing for years and and that that's also interesting because it gives everyone practical patch experience yes exactly everybody knew uh what a fix it was everybody knew a little bit about relevance i mean they knew enough to like check and figure out stuff and like if they didn't know what they were doing right away they would just poke me or somebody else to figure out why this fixlet wasn't relevant uh why it was relevant but it failed our classic content fixlet problems right everybody was going through it this isn't necessarily as true these days like because that that foundation is so solid at this point that uh people have specialized beyond needing to know that <laughs> right and they can focus on like web development or specific application problems or this particular bit of platform and not have to deal with specifically the content generation base mm -hmm. but yeah back in the day everybody had to know because that was just a common problem that everybody faced well and speaking of that specialization then the patch management process transferred to a different team and you were a part of that, right? Yeah. So we transitioned to having patch generation happen 
we were making that more and more automated. Uh, we were getting a bunch of people to help us with that. And that, <clears throat> that process to onboard those people, figure out how to do the automation, getting so that they understood what relevance was and uh, how to correct for individual mistakes uh, the content generation did uh, during Patch Tuesday under very tough circumstances. That took a little bit of time. Um, so I had to go for a while to sort of oversee that. But that was, that was an exciting time too, getting this new team spun up, getting them working on this content generation stuff. And it worked. <laughs> like, uh, it, like surprisingly, once you get the content generation solid enough and you have people that know how to maintain the content generation stuff, it becomes a much more solvable problem. But yeah, it's still a lot of inbuilt knowledge uh, that you have to develop at first to make sure that's all solid. And so then what did you do after patch management? So after patch management, and that's, that was all settled aware, and we were embarking on this new thing called the web UI. <laughs> uh, this was, I think, 2011 or 2012 or something like that. And we all recognized at that point that the console was aging. Flash was something that nobody wanted to deal with anymore. You know, <laughs> so we, we had a vision for actually logging into the console real time as opposed to waiting 10, 15 minutes for a login. Uh, reasonable things that people expect in an endpoint management solution. So we went out and explored all the different ways that we could sort of do this sort of massive undertaking. There was at that point a dozen years of maybe two dozen years, I don't know, like a long, long development, lots of development in the thick console and lots of logic put in. We had to figure out what's viable to port over. What are the minimum viable support cases? What is still useful to people to, to get into the web UI? And what is a good development framework that we could build out and have applications sort of build upon? Like that was like a very, very massive undertaking. And it's still a work in progress, even to this day. It's, we haven't gotten all of the stuff ported over into the web UI yet, but like we've done a lot of stuff and managed to get a lot of new cool stuff into the web UI that wouldn't have been possible in the day console back in the day. So yeah, I, I, uh, after patch, it was straight to web UI and it's been web UI since. Just such a massive, massive problem that uh, that that required so much thinking. <laughs> yep. A lot of like architecting and re-architecting. And yeah, absolutely. So we just had a, a major release, you know, here recently, and uh, it's all around our modern client management space. Um, so for our listeners who are unfamiliar with modern client management or MCM, um, can you describe it a bit and tell us what you're doing in that space with Big Fix, especially our new Big Fix mobile capability? Yeah, let me. Uh, so I'm not an offering management person, but let me let me try to uh, put on that hat and uh, give that a shot here. We've been developing this new capability called modern client management uh, that 
we that allow customers to basically use MDM APIs to get mobile endpoints to get like uh, iOS devices, Android devices, and uh, <clears throat> uh, Windows. 10 laptops and Mac laptops into, <clears throat> into BigFix managed via MDM APIs. Um, so increasingly, these vendors um, are adding additional endpoint management capabilities through just MDM APIs and are providing less and less access uh, at, the, at the agent layer. So we've been adding these sort of capabilities um, so that people can <clears throat> um, manage uh, restriction settings on their endpoints or like <clears throat> uh, wipe lost devices, all sorts of crazy stuff that we've been developing over the years to effectively manage these new classes of devices in a new way. Um, but at the same time, they can still manage through the big fix agent as well for like Windows and Mac devices. Um, so we're just letting, like, we're just adding this additional management layer where people can take advantage of BigFix to manage these devices via MDM APIs. And this has been a major part of your focus on the MCM and the web UI. How has that yes. been? Oh, it's, um, it's exciting. Um, also a lot of work. Um, uh, it's essentially adding a new device type uh, and adding it, uh, supporting it formally within BigFix, which I've never done before. Um, and there's a lot of complexity that goes into that, like what sort of actions we enable, what sort of inspector support that we need. So it's working with uh, a lot of different people, uh, a lot of different specialties on just making sure that uh, a button that uh, a, a specific action that you initiate on the web UI, what does that translate into in terms of a REST API command? How does that get translated from the REST API to something that the platform recognizes? There's all sorts of like uh, different layers that go into that. Um, and seeing that stuff work end to end, that's kind of amazing when it actually happens, but it's so much work to actually get things going. It's like, um, it's a lot of coordination, uh, but it's very exciting. It's very, very new. <laughs> it's very cool. Yeah, it's a lot of all new stuff. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the coolest technologies. I think, you know, when we when we first made um, modern client management available, you know, with Big Fix 10 and just the idea of being able to like, here, go get the Big Fix agent. Here's a URL. I don't have to push anything to you. I don't have to do anything. You just like log in here and all of a sudden things start cascading down onto the endpoint. Uh, it's just, like so brilliant. Um, and, and, a, and a problem that a lot of big fix administrators have, it's like, um, and, and it was compounded of course, by work from home with, um, you know, with the recent pandemic and, and issues like that. It's like, okay, well I need to get you a laptop. I just hired you. How do I get you working. <laughs> um, you know, so it, it was just brilliant to watch this new technology, you know, come into being and and to watch it go because it was such a problem for me as a big fix administrator. I was just thrilled. Yeah, actually seeing all that stuff get layered on uh, properly without any sort of intervention 
is kind of actually magical. Like every single one of those steps has like a lot of engineering effort built in. It's sort of like, do you remember back in the day when we were landing on Mars, like the Pathfinder, <laughs> like that seven minutes of like terror that happens where um, that Pathfinder lost telemetry with NASA or Houston, I guess. <laughs> and then they just had to watch helpless as stuff sort of automatically happen and get provision and they, sort of landed on Mars properly. It's sort of like that, where you don't have to do anything and things just automatically work by themselves. And you get that sort of warm, fuzzy feeling that like, wow, this took a little bit of time to set up. But like now, I, I guess it's, okay, so this is a terrible analogy because I guess we're not constantly <laughs> landing on Mars like nonstop, but like you can provision laptops nonstop. <laughs> but uh <laughs> uh that sort of same feeling where like wow this just happens automatically it's like really really magical to experience yeah for sure we've talked a lot about your time at big fix but what kind of tech and computer stuff do you interest you outside of your job it's a good question like actually to be frank like most of it is just like i'm too i'm super super big fix obsessed i guess <laughs> so Outside of like my dog and you know going out on dog walks and stuff like that, I'm mostly just doing big fake stuff. Um, occasionally, I'll play some video games uh, with friends or hang out with people in the real life. But no, uh, <laughs> I would say I uh, most of my interests are are just uh, straight up big fakes. <laughs> uh, it should probably expand on that at some point in my life but yeah it's 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 weird how you blink and so much of like you realize like wow i've been working on this thing for like 10 11 years and it hasn't felt you know you still get super excited to work on this sort of stuff and it hasn't felt like 10 12 years <laughs> it's, it's sort yeah. of crazy to me that that's happened um, but that's yeah, sort I can, of I can relate. what happened. Yeah, I, I just... Exactly. Uh, yeah, like, I don't know what happened. <laughs> I don't know what happened, guys. 12 years of my life disappeared. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's been fun. And and I think I think the other thing about it for you, at least, at least what I've seen is, you know, when I first met you five, six years ago, you were yeah. working on, you know, this little bit. And then, but you've, you've been able, to, it's like you've changed you've changed jobs even within the same job. There's always been something new and exciting, something that, you know, keeps you fascinated, things that actually kind of require you to do research and and learn new capabilities and learn new technologies and then become the person who's like explaining it to the rest of your team and explaining it to customers. Um, so, you know, from, from that perspective, you know, where you were when, like, when I first met you to now, I've, I've just seen that that's been amazing to me, how much growth I've seen there. So I'm sure that's why it doesn't feel like it's been horrible and you're still super interested because you're always learning something new. Yeah. There's always something new, like just, there's so much in this MDM space that we want to add and provide to our customers all of it requires careful research requires looking at what customers actually need and looking at the apis and then contextualizing that in terms of what we can do in the web ui or our apis it's like a lot of different interesting 
puzzle pieces that we have the opportunity to play around with. And luckily, what we've developed in BigFit so far is flexible enough to support our sort of support all these different puzzle pieces, essentially, right? Uh, to allow us to combine them in interesting and useful ways for our customers. It's like very, you know, I feel very fortunate to be able to work in this sort of environment and have this sort of architecture. It's, it's like, there's just so much we want to provide. <laughs> it's just, uh, and, and the fact that people are p- like paying us essentially to, to work on these cool puzzles all day. It's like, it's unbelievable. <laughs> How lucky are we? Yeah. That is cool. Yeah. And and I and and the Big Fix family and our customers really you know also make this really interesting. And you know you were talking about how you sit down and talk with customers about you know what are their real world use cases and then how do you actualize that in the product. Um, you know I think that's at the core of our mission here, um, not just to to provide cool technology, but to pro- provide cool technology that actually solves a business use. And I I certainly see that all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that. Like actually talking to customers in real life is always such a great experience. Like um uh, <clears throat> like the our customers, like they'll 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 they're real cool people. Um if they have a problem, they'll they'll hold you accountable to it. But generally like they're they're really smart people. It's so rewarding to go from like solving a technical engineering problem and like making this button uh, you know, have this particular REST API response to actually hearing from a customer what problem they're actually trying to solve and how that button and that particular API response actually introduces a meaningful change in their workflow or enables them to solve this really persistent problem in their deployment. And just figuring out how we can optimize that or make that better. Like, because our customers are very vocal about, like, if there's something wrong, like they'll tell us. If there's a way that we can improve the product, they'll let us know, right? Like, and just mm-hmm. hearing that stuff in real life yeah. really makes all of these sort of problems super meaningful and not like make this circuit board 5% faster, right? Like this this is like the farthest thing from make a circuit board 5% faster. <laughs> well, it's also interesting, like you, our customers are really passionate about, you know, their problems and how big fix helps them solve it and you are really passionate about big fix and helping them solve those problems and that's just something that comes out whenever you know I interact with you at conferences and user groups and stuff like that you know even when i was a customer and and still today when i'm also a big fixer it's just like your your passion really shows through yeah absolutely i, I hope this whole pandemic thing uh settles down soon and we can see like customers in real life again <laughs> that'd right. be that'd be really amazing like conferences yeah. and user groups yeah. and all that stuff absolutely yeah so one thing i'm curious about you know you are very passionate and you speak often at conferences and user groups and stuff like that is that something that you just kind of ended up doing or is that something that you were sort of always interested in like how did you end up you know speaking and interacting with people in that degree yeah, I don't know how this started actually. Like it's it's very like uh I don't think there was a conscious plan to push me in that direction. Um I think it started with probably like we probably had like some sort of user conference 
back at our old office where people showed up and, you know, I was probably a lead dev at some point for a product that was launching or a new feature and they just wanted me to speak about it. Uh, That's how it started. And then I started showing up at all these user conferences to get uh, the developer perspective and feedback from customers um, to, you know, talk about this cool thing you could do with web UI or stuff like that. And I just became gradually like one of the developer representatives that could talk to customers. Uh, not, not all big fixed uh, developers or developers in general, like necessarily enjoy <laughs> or enjoy doing stuff that's not related to computer. <laughs> um, right. But that's always fascinated me to put context uh, behind the problems that we were solving and to explain that to people why, this particular thing matters or why you can ignore this problem because it will be like a 0.02% chance that anybody will run into it. I think having that information is always super critical. So I don't know. I guess other people realized that I liked this context and they just kept on pushing me to do that. (laughs) And I never said no. (laughs) So I kept doing it. (laughs) That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. It just came along the way. (laughs) Yeah. That's great. Did you have any public speaking experience in school or anything like that? Oh, uh, yes. Yes, I did. Uh, back in high school, I, I did this thing called policy debate. Uh, I was part of the speech and debate team. In policy debate, you are trying to argue for or against a particular resolution. Like, I think the year I did it, we were trying to determine whether deterrence was a good thing or not in terms of nuclear weapons. (laughs) And and we would basically cite all sorts of evidence at ridiculous speeds. There was this thing called spreading, which was how fast can you read this note card so that you can enter it for the record so that you had, when you were making your arguments for or against a particular argument, you had evidence to cite saying like this really important scientist or the UN study for such and such says that nuclear weapons are good or bad. Uh, and that's the way that it was, it's crazy to me that that's the way that policy debate worked. <laughs> You're just <laughs> not actually trying to argue or trying to have a reasoned debate with somebody. You're just like talking a million miles per hour, trying to get evidence onto the board. And if they didn't respond, cause they weren't, like their their words per minute were not as high as you you can say that they didn't respond to the argument. I you know that's what I did. <laughs> that was that was my public speaking experience. Just talking a million miles per hour. Uh, yeah, and you know that sort of carries over, I guess, to my speaking style. I've I've constantly gotten feedback that I go too fast. <laughs> I blame my formative years as a speech and debater. That's really interesting. I've seen that only in movies. I've never like been in person at something like that, but I've seen it yeah. in movies. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard of like debate teams and stuff, but I, I wasn't aware that the, that's the spreading technique was, yeah, that, yeah, that technique. I didn't, yeah, I knew about that the same as you, James. I was like, yeah, I, I know, you know, I know about speech and debate, but that, that technique of just, you know, yeah, saying as much as you can, as fast as you can, you know, I, I didn't see that until the movies. <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't aware of that at all, honestly. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. 
it feels like a disgenuous way of arguing. Like you didn't actually respond to my thing. And it's just like, well, you said 15 different things like <laughs> in three seconds. <Yeah>. So, <laughs> Well, and it seems like optimizing for one very specific thing, which is just like the amount of stuff. Yeah. Not the not quality or anything. Or I know. It's, it, yeah. So then you get into like um, sort of meta arguments saying like the other team is like not making a good faith like attempt to have a real debate. All they're interested in doing is presenting 50 arguments uh, that are low quality in like 30 mm-hmm. seconds. <laughs> How can anybody respond to that? That's that uh, decreases the educational benefits of this debate in the first place and waste everybody's time. <laughs> and you start getting into all these meta arguments, which are really, really amazing. Um, that's the way that you deal with that sort of uh, garbage. <laughs> I wish I did that more as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or then you have the meta argument that this whole premise is nonsense. <laughs> yeah, then you have yeah. the meta-meta argument that says you can't use that meta argument because we spent all this time preparing. If you never <laughs> respond to anybody's arguments and say that, you know, preparation is bad, that introduces all sorts of negative impacts on the debate community and all that sort of stuff. So you get into, like, how can a judge actually sort through all that stuff, right? Like, that's crazy. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but that's that's what we did. <laughs> that's what we did uh, in high school. <laughs> nice. Well, I was going to ask you about what you do outside of work, but I think you kind of answered that question. Um, so, so um, I mean, feel free to answer that question if you'd like, but it sounds like mostly you just live, sleep, eat, breathe, big fix, and walk your dog. Yeah, that's that sounds about right. Um, <laughs> maybe one day I'll develop cooking skills and don't have to uh good or take out so much um it's bad when the in and out people recognize you by like just sight and <laughs> have to order anymore <laughs> they just give you a number one with grilled onions and uh animal style fries like that's that's the change i would like to make in real life to make my own double double <laughs> and not have to. <laughs> i like uh, it i like it yeah. Life goals. I mean, it's life a, goals. It, yeah, it's such good value, right, guys? It's and it's like two minutes from my place. Like, it's very reasonable <laughs> to, <laughs> to have this optimization. <laughs> but I feel like I feel like making a burger is a pretty low bar for something to accomplish. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, small steps, James. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Nice. Well, thanks, Dex. This has been awesome. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing your time with Big Fix. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks for our listeners to joining us today on Endpoint Management Today. This podcast is a brainchild of James Stewart and Rhonda Student Kaiser. The program is edited by myself and Rhonda. Original music from Dan Corcoran, Big Fix Specialist.